What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Future Projection Podcast, a Baseball America podcast featuring myself, Carlos Colazzo, and Ben Badler. This is episode 21. We are in the new year, our first podcast in 2022. Ben, how's it going, man? And, and where have you been? Where have we been? Yeah, where have we been? It's been a while since uh, we recorded. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't know this yet, but I actually got uh, I got suspended from the future projection podcast in November yes, without pay. Uh, yeah. I, I said some critical things about uh, Rob Manfred and about the commissioner's office. So I, I got sent away for a while and an MLB yeah. started my, my re-education process uh, met this really nice guy, Ken, who was there with me. And uh, but I'm, I'm back now. Uh, I'm here to spread, spread the truth about uh, Rob Manfred, the, the greatest commissioner in in the history of of all sports uh many people are are saying that um and is is now honorably trying to save uh, america's pastime from baseball's yeah. greatest enemy the uh the baseball player so uh, i learned a lot in during my my time there no no just wonderfully uh, put ben wonderfully put. i could not have said it better myself <laughs> kidding kidding aside <laughs> i was i was uh, i was out for about a month uh because in in november i, I became a dad uh my daughter yes was, congratulations thank you yeah she my daughter was born came about a, a month before her her due date so she's she's tiny but she's she's super adorable uh just being <laughs> able to hold her maybe not the first time because that was just so chaotic and mm. screaming and i was crying and <laughs> all these doctors and nurses in the room and uh but i think the second time i got to Holder, it was just me and me and my wife, and um, just a really special feeling that I haven't felt anything like that before. So, um, at the same time, uh, wow, does it drain every, <laughs> everything from your time, your your energy, mm -hmm. your your mental capacity? It's it's exhausting. Uh, I'm not sure if my uh, brain is still operating at <laughs> full speed right now, going on uh, four four or five hours maybe of, of sleep each night. So. Um, if any of my, any of my calls on breakout players or, or anything like that end up being, being wrong, uh, by the end of the year, that's, yeah, we'll just uh, chalk it up to your, your fatherly duties now. That's, that's the reason why, but, <laughs> but yeah, I was just being a dad for, for about a month, uh, came back, finished the prospect handbook. Uh, and then it was, then it was the holidays. So, uh, now we're, but now we're back. We are. It, it is nice for you to finally get that out there, Ben. I obviously didn't want to spoil the announcement for you. Wanted you to kind of take the time yourself to, to share it with our listeners and, and all the beer readers. I don't even know if you've put it on Twitter, if people just generally know, or if this is kind of going to be your announcement. But I think we were we had actually taken questions for this episode the day before your daughter was born. I think we were planning to record that morning. And then we woke up and we were, we were getting ready to go. And you're like, uh, I got to go to the hospital. I was like, okay. Uh, and then sure enough, new baby came into the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I had, uh, I had prospect handbook calls with, you know, different folks from clubs lined up that day. I was like, uh, I was like, we might have to reschedule. <laughs> so, um, but it, uh, somehow it all, I don't all know. worked out on, on the baby side and the handbook side. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you're ever fully prepared for that. I obviously can't speak from any experience and hopefully I won't have to for, for many, many years to come because it sounds exhausting. <laughs> Um, but it does, it does seem like the timing, um, was chaotic for you. Cause I mean, we always talk about the prospect handbook season is insane. I, I feel like I have no time during prospect handbook. So I can't imagine trying to take care of another human being who's totally reliant on, on me while also trying to, you know, 
write up a couple chapters in the prospect handbook and stay sane. Yeah. Yeah. There's never like a, an ideal time on the baseball America calendar to like take <laughs> a month <laughs> where you, where you're, where you're pretty much out you of basically it, but, need uh, to try and sneak it in the two week period that is post handbook being sent. And base before we, we get started with January preview content and spring schedule stuff, there's a two week area you need to hit, but I guess uh it it extends beyond two weeks regardless anyways so yeah well we got january 15th coming up with the international signing day too so there's there's always Mm -hmm. uh something on the calendar but uh yeah i mean i obviously stepped out in in november and left left you in charge of of baseball while i was away so i don't know can you feel me in on your part um, can can you fill me in like 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 just we've had a lot going like on big free agents a lot signings. of transactions yeah big signings, block, big blockbuster deals like how did the rule five draft go like what yeah what, it was jj's favorite rule five draft of all time <laughs> um actually it was kind of encouraging or not encouraging but just amazing to see jj switch his passion for the rule five draft to the minor league rule five draft and and basically he had to use that as his escape and the amount of information and passion that he and Jeff Ponce, who we have not spoken about on this podcast because he came on board at Baseball America in between this episode and our previous episode. But those two, the the amount of attention to detail they put into a minor league rule five draft is, is truly just something that Baseball America, it's so Baseball America, it's such a minor niche little event on the baseball calendar that most people probably don't even know about uh it's the diehard of the diehard event uh and watching them put all that energy and information into that was really cool uh, but you had mentioned the international prospects january 15th coming up um i wanted to just point out and alert to our listeners that you do have an update to our international prospect big board um the top 50 bonuses with their expected teams with information on those players do you want to touch on that at all, Ben. I know, obviously, if you're a subscriber to Baseball America, you can get the entire uh, article and all the information at your leisure, but just wanted to give you the opportunity to touch on the class uh, or anything that you wanted to mention before we get into some of the topics of today's episode. Yeah, we got, uh, yeah, like you said, updating our our board of the top 50 expected bonuses on, or players expected to top for those, expected to sign for those top 50 bonuses um you know obviously these you know we've written about for going back a decade now if if not longer that you know these players are you know reach you know commitments to sign with clubs way in advance of the signing day which originally would have been July 2nd 2021 but uh gets pushed back 6 months to uh January 15th this year so a lot of these players have been you know committed to clubs going back uh, two, if, if not three years in some cases. So, um, you know, look, go, I was going back and looking at videos of some of these guys who I saw back in like 2019. <laughs> That's the last time that, uh, you know, a lot of international scouts, uh, you know, from, you know, from, from clubs that are not going to sign a player have, have seen a lot of these guys. So, um, you know, it's, it's totally different than the draft process, which is why we, just lined it up by the by the bonus amount not obviously certainly don't believe that the the amount of money you sign for is a you know a perfect proxy for talent by by any means um and because these kids can change 
so much <laughs> in three months, five months, eight months, uh, let alone a year or, or multiple years. So uh, very, very different than, um, you know, than the draft, e- even the 2020 draft where we didn't really have much new information, you know, leading up to the, you know, the spring and, and the summer that year. Yeah, the evaluation gap is still smaller in, in that case. Given that, is it at all easy or not easy? But do you have a gauge as to the strength of a class compared to a typical international signing class? Or is it really just impossible to tell, uh, given the amount of information that you don't have to work with, with these guys not getting out and being evaluated by by teams and by scouts? Yeah, it's, it's, it's harder to say, because there's so many guys who will be, you know, guys will sign for 200,000, 400,000, where it's like, oh, like if everything like, you know, wiped clean with a blank slate today, that guy might be, you know, uh, a $1 million guy or, or a $2 million guy. So just, just the nature of how uh, players are, are evaluated and, and the whole process works right now where teams are focused probably more on 2024 players than they are on on this year's class of guys right now uh makes it really hard to to say it at this point um you know back you know going back to like 2019 at least that player signing on on july 2nd and then you could go through a whole process of seeing these guys play in tricky league and dominican instructional league Mm -hmm. and you know go around to see almost every single team uh either at their academy in the dr watching them playing games against uh, other clubs at other other facilities so had a pretty good handle on on guys by by then but um for the pre-signing process right now it's it's just much more um it's just more difficult to Mm -hmm. get a strong grasp on that right now yeah that'll make sense uh but definitely check out ben's board if you have not at this point it's up on the site right now uh, another international topic I wanted to touch on at least briefly and see what your thoughts were. Um, but I believe in late November, I think it was like November 27th, the Rays uh, and Wander Franco agreed to an 11 year extension. It set the organization's record uh, for the biggest contract ever given out by Tampa, topping Evan Longoria's $100 million deal. Um, it is an 11 year, $182 million extension. Um, we've seen teams in recent years, it seems like be more aggressive and trying to extend some of their young talents before they reach free agency, um, pay them out of some of their arbitration years and just extend the team control on them. I'm just curious about what, what you think about this signing specifically, uh, how this changes, maybe how you view Wander Franco and his value to the club, whether or not you think these are good moves for teams, whether or not you think they're good moves for players, Obviously, one of the the contracts that gets brought up quite a bit um, that you could maybe tie into this conversation is Ronald Acuna's deal, which was an eight-year, $100 million contract that he signed with the Braves. Uh, And I think pretty immediately that contract was criticized as being extremely team-friendly. But at the same time, I think we've talked about it, at least within the BA Slack. I don't know if I've publicly talked about this on the podcast, but for the individual, I can see it being very difficult to turn down a deal like that. I mean, Ronald Acuna was not a big bonus international signing uh, by any means. He had not gotten his first big payday and you never really know what's going to happen in the future. Even if you're one of the best young players in the world, you could get injured. Uh, something could ha- happen off the field um, and a hundred million dollars is nothing to laugh at. 
by any means, you're setting yourself up and your children up and your grandchildren up for years and years and years. So just wanted to throw this out, Ben, and see what you what you thought about the Wander Franco contract and teams trying to aggressively lock up younger players, uh, if you think we'll continue to kind of see this happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great deal for for the Rays. I mean, Wander was our, our number one prospect in baseball, I believe two, two years in a row. And yep. everything, you know, you, you can see it in his major league debut. Everything points to him being uh, a star, you know, potential superstar type player. I mean, I, I think he's going to be, you know, it, it's not like, you know, Vlad Jr. power or, or the, you know, just the raw tools that you see from a, like a Fernando Tatis Jr. or, 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 or Ronald Acuna. But this is a, a really special hitter who I think is going to be in you know mvp conversations pretty consistently over the course of his career and and i believe he's still what 20 21 years old now so i think he'll be in his age 21 season uh for the for the 2022 year yeah he was in his age 20 season last year so so he's you know you're you're securing as as tampa pretty much all of his prime years uh you know obviously the rays are, are not a team that's going out and signing big <laughs> free agents but you're, you're you know they're, they're putting out some money so i you know they're they're obviously i guess you'd say there is some risk but at, at the same time you know i feel like Walter franco is about as safe as a bet as it's going to get just given his his skill set and what he's already shown at a young age at the same time I mean, Wander Franco did not sign for a small bonus by any means. And, you know, it comes from a, you know, a baseball family and, um, you know, it's not like he's, he's struggling by any means, uh, but he's securing, he said a contract for close to $200 million. So, so I get why he did it too. I think it, it makes sense for him. I think what's, you know, sometimes we think about it as, you know, team friendly, or is it player friendly? And I think what happens a lot of times in when these deals actually get done is, is whether a deal is agent friendly, because that's a major, the agent is a major decision maker mm-hmm. and an influencer in whether, a, you know, a player is going to sign the, the contract. Cause I think a lot of teams are trying to extend their younger players, but the, you know, the, the agents who are, you know, who, who are larger agencies, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of Boris corporation clients taking these big extensions. There's a reason why Juan Soto's free agency has been kind of talked about for years now, as everyone kind of is expecting him to, to get to free agency. No one ever thought he was going to sign one of these deals. Right. So if, you know, if, if you're an agent and you have this, you know, a, a, a wide range of, of players in your agency and, and you have a lot of different sources of, of revenue coming in, you can take the risk that, you know, you have a young player who you're, you don't really make money on these guys as, as an agent until they hit salary arbitration. And then really once they hit free agency, but if you're, you know, if you're representing an international player or, or say even a high school player in the United States, you, you might be representing them from the time they're, you know, or in the, you know, a player from the high school side, you know, advising them 
from the time they're 16 years old. Yeah, don't ruin anyone's eligibility in here, Ben. Come on. Yeah. So <laughs> it's 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 a long process between you know 16, 17, even if you're you know getting them into your as a client when they're 18 years old. It's a long road <laughs> to get to just a salary arbitration or, or free agency by the time they're you know 28, 29, or, or sometimes 30 years old. And along the way, if some other agent comes in and takes your client away from you, you're, you're just out of luck, man. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't get paid. You don't get a, a commission on, on, on their contract at all. Uh, but if your client, you know, if you're a, you know, a smaller agency, you're, you're dependent on, on fewer players. If you have a client who signs this, you know, uh, you know, a $50 million extension while you're his agent, uh, you know, before he gets to free agency, before he gets to salary arbitration, you're, you're able to lock that commission in for yourself. So it's, it's, you know, you know, one of these principal agent problems to, to a certain extent where, um, you know, again, like, I, I think it's a good deal for, for Wander Franco to, to take. So I, I don't want that to get misconstrued, but I think that the who who a player's agent is and and the circumstances there are are often a a driving factor in whether the deal actually gets done just as much as whether it's you know team friendly or or player friendly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, this deal, it's eleven years. It takes Wander through his age thirty two season in twenty thirty three. I believe there is a buyout. Uh, and he'll be an unrestricted free agent at the latest uh, in 2034, which would be his age 33 season. So there's a chance. I mean, it's an 11 year contract. So you think, okay, this is his one big payday, but he's so young when he got to the major leagues and established himself. And when he got this extension that he's, he's setting himself up for another pretty solid contract in his early thirties. Uh, if he continues to be the player that we all expect him to be. Uh, are, are there any other players that you would feel confident in extending if you're running a team Ben, or any player types that you feel more confident in, in general? And would you, would you be as aggressive in trying to pursue some of these deals with pitchers, let's say, just given the attrition rate of those guys uh, or just how would you view it from the, from the team aspect? If you're, if you're running a, a club. Yeah, it's, it's something where it's, it's interesting because, you know, Franco doesn't have, he, he has major league experience, obviously, and we saw what he did. I mean, he's you know, close to the rookie of the year, even though he yeah, wasn't third, even there. Third for... place finish in the rookie of the year in just 70 games. I think I would have – I don't know if we talked about this in the podcast either. I would have voted for Wander just prorating what he did. I don't know if you can hold his his ABs and his innings against him because, I mean, honestly, he could have been promoted very early in the season, and I think he would have held his own. Um, yeah. But that's just speculation. But given what he did in the time – that he had available, I thought he was probably the best rookie in baseball. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I, I think you go back and you look at a contract, you know, even like, like Evan Longoria's with the Rays um, or which, which obviously worked out, you know, tremendously for Tampa or, or some other deals like, you know, Scott Kingery with the, the Phillies or, or Jonathan Singleton, some of these contracts that did not work out for for the clubs and you know you know i guess give it a little more time in in kingery's case but um you know i i think teams will or or 
probably should be more aggressive in trying to, you know, see if they can secure uh, contract extensions with players who have yet to make their major league debut um, or, or even have, or have very, very little time at the big league level. Obviously, you know, we, we have more confidence, even more confidence. I, I guess I was always had a lot of confidence in Wander even before the 2021 season. But, you know, when you see him perform the way he did at the major league level, certainly you're going to have more confidence in, in how it's going to translate at that level. But I, I think you have, we have a lot of information now on, on these players. Um, we, we, we know they're extremely, especially the top 25, 50 type prospects in, in baseball. We, we know those guys are, are extremely valuable. The, the success rate on those guys, especially a top 25 type of uh, position prospect, the, the, the returns on, on those players have, have typically been pretty, pretty outstanding with obviously still some, some misses in there, but uh, I do think teams, I, I wonder if we'll see it become ha- happening more often. Uh, Cause I think it should happen where, where teams will try to be more aggressive in, in securing these extensions for players before they get to the big leagues, obviously maybe not at the level of a, a Wander Franco type of money, but I, I think there are players who, you know, would take, you know, 40, 50 million type dollar extensions and, and give up their, their free agency years too, uh, in, in exchange for, um, you know, what would, you know, generally be, I think, looked at as a, uh, a team friendly mm-hmm. contract. If, you know, even if the player turns into uh, an average uh, everyday type of big leaguer. Yeah. I'm curious how the frequency of these type of deals will change in whatever the new CBA system we're working with. Obviously, we don't know what that's going to be yet, but I would imagine that the union is pushing pretty hard to get younger payer, players paid earlier in their careers. Obviously, uh, younger players are, are more valuable than ever, just given, given the young players in the league, given how uh, some of these stars have come in and performed and Obviously, teams want to get the most out of those players while they're on these cheap deals. So I'm really curious to see how that kind of element of this will impact the number of these deals we see uh, and whether or not players will be more or less incentivized to take these. Um, yeah, that's but- why it's always it's why it's always surprised me why the union has not pushed harder to raise the minimum salary um, from you know half a million dollars or so. I mean, I, I think that's part of why these guys are, are taking some of these deals is because those first three plus years in the big leagues you're I mean it's not you know you're not it's not poverty wages or anything like that but it's you know the, the amount of money you can make if you're willing to give up free agent years to sign in a you know what ge- again would generally be called I think a, a team friendly extension is, is so alluring because the, the disparity between that and the, the league minimum salary is just so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other big deals that you want to mention uh, before we get into some prospect handbook talk, Ben, there was a lot of stuff that happened prior to the lockout um, happening, uh, but it was obviously a bit ago. So if you don't have anything, we can jump into another topic that I wanted to touch on. Matt Eddie wrote about recently on the site, but I'll, I'll just give you a chance to mention anything else if you want to. I mean like the the minor league rule five draft or 
Yeah, or any deals, or <laughs> maybe you can talk more about Ken. I don't know, whatever you have on your mind. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's cool. I I like seeing Texas get uh, get aggressive. I don't mm -hmm. know. <laughs> Curious to see how that all uh, uh, shakes out. But it's 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 fun to see teams even at the even at the bottom spending spending money to just to get more aggressive. I guess one other one I want to ask you about was the, the Byron Buxton deal. It's not the same as Wander Franco. Obviously, Buxton has been in the league for a while, but the deal itself and, and how how reliant it is on incentives and playing time, I thought made sense, a ton of sense for both sides. I was excited to see a quote-unquote small market organization like Minnesota keep a fan favorite and franchise player in Minnesota. It seemed like Byron definitely wanted to make that happen. Um it seemed like a very fair deal just based on how it was uh, organized. And if, if Buxton stays healthy, you have to be thrilled with what you're getting from him for, for that dollar amount. I think even if he hits all those incentives, you'd still feel pretty good given that he was really the best player in baseball last year when he was healthy. So that was a fun one to see from my perspective. You have any thoughts on, on the Buxton twins deal? Yeah. I mean, you keep saying if he stays healthy, right? Like that's <laughs> everything with, with him. He's played over a hundred games like once in his career and he's in his late twenties. Now um, players typically don't get healthier there <laughs> in their thirties. So it's, I mean, I, I love Byron Buxton. I've been a huge Byron Buxton believer for, for a long time, but man, is it just frustrating when he just can't stay on the field. So, um, I mean, I, I think it's a really good deal for, for him. And he's like, he's just, he's obviously just one of those players where it's like, Oh, like I, I wish he could just mm -hmm. stay healthy. Like, you know, like think back to like Grady Sizemore, somebody like that. Like there's just these guys where, I mean, health is, there is a skill to health and durability even for position players. And it just really, uh, would scare me, but, but at the same time, I, I mean, I, I get it. Like when, he, when he's on the field, uh, especially last year, he's one of the elite, elite players in the game. Yep. No doubt. Let's see what, we'll see what happens with, with Buxton wanted to talk a little bit about the, the next wave of catching that we will hopefully be seeing in the big leagues uh, recently. And we've talked about this for a while, how, just how good the catching depth is on the top 100 throughout last year. Uh, and after going through the prospect handbook season, Matt Eddy did a story on how there are now seven catchers who rank as number one prospects in their organizations uh, for this year. That is a new high watermark for the Baseball America era. We've done this for 40 years, uh, and that topped the previous high, which I believe was five. Um, but I'll link Matt Eddy's full story in the show notes so you guys can check out the exact details on that. Um, but obviously with Adley Rushman, being at the top of this list and a number of impressive players, including Gabriel Moreno, Francisco Alvarez, Diego Cartaya, Corey Lee, Cabot Ruiz, and Tyler Soderstrom. We have a, an extremely impressive group of catchers, and that's not even touching on others, uh, who aren't number one players in their organization, guys like Shea Langoliers, uh, Henry Davis, Joey Bart, uh, and more. Just It feels like it keeps going on and on and on. Um, obviously, the, the catching talent at the major league level at this point is pretty depressing. Um, and maybe that's just based on how catchers have been valued with, with pitch framing becoming so important uh, that hitting maybe takes a backseat and maybe 
as the robo umps come in, we'll just get a, a higher bar for the offensive game at the position. But either way, the talent is at a very high level right now. Uh, and I guess over the next decade or so, we sh maybe should see another wave of, of really impressive catchers kind of following up a group uh, with Buster Posey and Yadier Molina uh, and some others who, who headed a, a catching era that is, is pretty much over now. Um, but Ben, what do you think about the state of catching? Uh, I guess not in Major League Baseball, but in, in prospects who we should see, see very soon in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I, I think it's phenomenal right now. I mean, like you said, Adley, obviously, I think you make a Casey's for him to be the number one overall prospect in baseball. You mentioned, you know, Francisco Alvarez and, and Gabriel Moreno. Um, you know, both of them certainly could be top 10. I'll even stretch it to top 20 prospects just to, um, you know, put a wider band around it. So um, I, I think there's a, about a dozen or so guys um, you know, you mentioned a bunch of them like MJ Melendez, Luis Campusano, Joey Bard. I think, I think you mentioned Corey Lee, like it's about a dozen guys who I could see being in our top 100. I, I think that, I think there'll be at least 10 catchers who will be in our top 100. And, and the thing about all those guys too, probably with the, with the exception of Tyler Soderstrom, where there's some more questions about his defense, although it, it seems like it's going in the, in the right direction. It, it might just be a matter of like his bat is so good. <laughs> we, we just need to get him in, in the lineup yeah. and he's, he's in the big leagues by like, you know, 20, 21 years old. Um, so that could be part of it in his case, but, but otherwise pretty much all these guys are going to stick behind the plate too. It's, it's not like catchers in, in name only like Adley and Gabriel Moreno and, you know, Alvarez, I've said some work, I think, work to do early on in his career on, on blocking and, and receiving, but like these other guys are, are going to stick behind the plate and have a chance to deliver some pretty good offensive impact too. So it's, it's a pretty, like you said, pretty striking disparity between the level of, or the caliber of catching that we're seeing and, and the offensive performances that we're seeing from catchers at the major league level right now, compared to what we what we hopefully will be seeing, you know, five years down the road when, when these guys get to the big leagues or are, are really making an impact in the big leagues. Obviously there are a lot of guys who are going to be in the top 100 that, that maybe all of our listeners are pretty familiar with, but do you have any interesting picks who maybe won't be on the top 100, at least to start the year that you're fascinated by? I know there's, there's one in particular that, that you seem very high on from the 2021 draft class, but are there any guys that, that you just want to point out or highlight here that maybe aren't the elite top tier catching prospects now, but, but you think are, are worth keeping an eye on or just following uh, closely as we kind of get into the season? Yeah, I, I love Harry Ford uh, Mariners first round pick this year. I mean, I, I wouldn't call him like a sleeper mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that. Obviously he was a you know, pretty prominent first round pick coming out of I high don't. school from, from Georgia came out, had a really nice pro debut and, in Arizona. And ben, I think that for these questions, you, you must just like have a spreadsheet of height and you basically eliminate anyone who's over <laughs> six foot, six one from your answers. You just do not go for the tall guys. Any, anyone who's short, you're in on. The, well, it gets it just easier continues with the to be a catchers, trend. I guess I, I love it. That, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but, but I, yeah, I mean, with, with Ford, it's, I mean, he, he's such an unusual mm -hmm. catching prospect, right? Cause you could, could throw him out at third base you yeah. could put him at second base you could run him out in center field at least for now 
yeah, he's such a freak athlete and feel good about it. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's athletic. He can, he can run. He's, he's explosive. Uh, so all the athletic indicators that Mm -hmm. you look for there, just, just as far as the raw athleticism, but I think it's a pretty polished hitter too. Like a pretty polished baseball player. Uh, I think he's got a good sense of the strike zone. Uh, I really like his, his swing. It's, it's compact. It, It makes a lot of contact. There's, there's some explosion in that swing too. And I, I think there's, there's some, some power there too, certainly uh, in, in the future. So um, I think he's a guy who's going to, you know, get on base at a, at a high clip, make a lot of contact and and has a chance to be, you know, 2025 type home run hitter and maybe stay behind the plate. Again, it's, he's just such an unusual guy where he could like, not quite like Will Myers or like he's a different athlete than, than Will Myers was as a, as a catcher, but somebody where, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's third base, maybe it's right field, maybe it's center. I mean, he legitimately has a chance to play center field if they wanted to run him out there. I think he could handle himself pretty well. Yeah. So it's, you know, he's not like a typical center field, maybe body type right now. Like, I I don't know how that run tool is going to age, especially if they keep him catching. So maybe that backs up, but like, I mean, certainly put him on a corner out like put him in right field i think it'd be a you know a chance to be a plus plus defender out there just just with the tool so there's there's a lot of things to like about him athletically and as just as far as you know the flexibility of where he could fit on the field but again i, I always love guys who are just pure hitters who, who make a lot of contact who control the strike zone get on base uh and, and can drive the ball and, and he has all a all of that too. So mm-hmm. he's, he's one guy I could see who probably won't be, I would think in our top 100 yet, but I, I think by the time, you know, we're having this, this conversation next year, uh, I would bet on him making that jump in there. Yeah. A, a guy I have is a little bit different from, from Ford's profile, similar questions about whether or not he's going to stay behind the plate, but I think for, for probably worse reasons than Harry Ford and my guys, Austin Wells, who's the number five prospect in the Yankee system. Um, unlike, I think you mentioned it, most of those top tier catching prospects that we mentioned, you, you feel pretty good about them sticking behind the plate. That's definitely not the case with Wells. I mean, he's still catching now. He spent all his time in the field at catcher in 2021. Uh, but the draw for me with Wells is just his bat. I mean, he is a guy who has such a lengthy track record of performing offensively, uh, going back to high school. He didn't catch a lot in high school because he had an arm injury, I think he was under Under Armour All-American, actually. He was supposed to catch in the game, but didn't because he had an arm injury. Um, but the bat has always been good. He's hit for power. He's had plus raw power. Hit for a high average. He was a draft-eligible sophomore at Arizona who produced in both years um, in college at a very high level for average, for on-base percentage, for power, um, and was drafted in the first round by the Yankees. I think the Yankees actually drafted him out of high school and then again out of college. And in his um, pro career so far, he's continued to just hit well. Very high average. I like how he controls the zone. I like the swing. I like the power potential. And for me, if he can just – the arm has some real questions. Uh, And I think just reading some of Josh's reporting and his scouting report on Wells this offseason as well, it it hasn't trended in the right direction. Um, So maybe he's a guy that has to move. And if so, maybe this is kind of cheating for this conversation on catchers. But – if he does manage to stick back there, I have a lot of confidence in him bringing some value as an offensive contributor, as a left-handed bat 
with plate discipline, with power, and I think ability to hit for good average as well. Um, so he's one that I'll point out. Um, ben, do you have any other ones you want to go to? Yeah, I guess one other guy I would say from who was with, uh, you know, was also in Arizona this or this past summer was uh, Jefferson Kiro mm-hmm. with the Brewers. Um, Brewers seem to keep popping these interesting guys out of Venezuela between him and uh, Hedbert Perez and, and Jackson Churio and uh, probably some interesting guys. It sounds like coming on the on the 15th too for for this year's class. So um Kiro, I mean, I think Hedbert Perez is more famous uh, right now, but it was pretty close as far as ranking them in in the Brewer system this year. It was, you know, they, they were right next to each other. You could flip a coin, I think, either way. I think Perez, obviously, you know, more, more recognition. He, he was at the alternate training site in 2020 as a, 17 year old or he ever played and went out and had a good debut and, and got promoted to low a and by by the end of the season as an 18 year old and um, I think Carol might have joined him had he not gotten hurt at the end of the year but he's I mean every manager he's going to have is, is going to love him because he just has everything you're you're looking for defensively as far as um, you know, ability to, to receive block, throw plus arm control, the running game does all the, the little things really well, uh, especially for somebody who just turns 19 after the season and, and all the, you know, a- everything, as far as the, you know, his ability to work with pitchers and, and leadership, he's just a very high energy vocal type of leader that all of his, you know, I think it's just going to really endear him to all of his, managers and and his teammates uh but also he's, he's a good hitter i mean it's it's not the bat speed that you see from hedbert perez or or some other players so i, I don't know how much power ultimately ends up being there in, in games we'll we'll see but he he had a nice debut in in arizona hit over 300 on base over 400 slugged 500 uh, you know, Arizona helps the ball carry some, but um, he's another guy with a, a good eye for for the strike zone, probably better than, or I would say definitely better than uh, Hedbert right now, but um, makes a lot of contact, gets on base, and and a guy who's a, a really strong bet to not just, I think, stick behind the plate, but, but really a really high caliber defender back there too. So um, I think he's a, you know, he's already in the Brewers top 10 prospects, but I think he's a guy who, you know, if he goes out next year, we could see him make a, uh, maybe not this year, but uh, or at some point, I think in the next couple of years, make a jump the way we saw, you know, Cabert Ruiz make um, to, to become one of the, the better catching prospects in, in all of baseball. Yeah. The guy I wanted to go to next um, is a player staying on the East coast here, going to the Phillies um, and a player who was near the back of the system a year ago, made a really impressive jump this season. And that's Logan O'Hoppy. Uh, he was drafted in the 23rd round out of high school and just the progress he made with the bat um, starting in high a this year in 2021, spent the bulk of his season there and hit really well, but advanced all the way to AAA as a 21 year old, the offensive numbers weren't as impressive as he climbed the ladder but I think it was just 19 games between double A AA and triple A. So not a huge sample, 
Um, but I, th- I was really encouraged by the work that he was able to do with his swing path to kind of cut down the strikeouts. Uh, previously, that was a big question mark for him. I think in low A in 2019, he struck out near a 30% rate. Um, and in 2021, even as he climbed the ladder, that that mark didn't get above 20% at any point during the year. And unlike Austin Wells, I think there's a lot to be excited about for Logan Ohapi defensively. I mean, we have plus uh, defensive and throwing grades on him at the moment. He gets a lot of really impressive reviews for his makeup, his work ethic, um, just his dedication to the defensive game. It sounds like pitchers like throwing to him. Um, so you feel pretty good about him sticking behind the plate. And, and I'm just really encouraged by his improvement and, and putting the bat on the ball this year. He's got some power. Uh, there are scouts who think he could be a guy who gets to 20, 25 home runs. Um, and if you're getting that kind of power output as a catcher and you feel pretty good about the defensive evaluations um, that you're getting, I'm pretty encouraged with that. The Phillies have had a couple position players that have made big jumps this year. And I think Logan Ohapi is one of the guys who, I don't know if he's getting enough attention, but um, really curious to see how he handles upper level pitching, maybe in a larger sample and over a full season. Um, but just the work that he did with his swing over the last year, and I guess it was more than a year given given the off time um, in the 2020 season or lack thereof. But he's, he's encouraging to me um, just because I feel good about the defensive foundation. I like a lot about what we hear about with just makeup, work ethic. Um, and if he is able to just put the bat on the ball a little bit more frequently, I think he's got the, the power, the raw power in the tank to, to provide some impact as well. So that's one that I'll, I'll kind of close with. Are there any, any others you wanted to mention, Ben, before we move on? Um, there, there are a ton we could talk about. Um, yeah, I've always, yeah, Hoppy was always an interesting guy, like the summer after he signs. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember talking to people around the Gulf Coast League about him and people bringing him up, which is kind of unusual for a 23rd round pick mm-hmm. <laughs> out of high school. I mean, obviously, you know, signed for about $200,000, but, yep. um, you know, not like a $1.5 million guy in the, <laughs> at the end of the draft that you're. Yeah. Not getting. a very so Ford I, caliber kind of prospect. No, he's pretty under the radar and, you know, high school kid from, from New York, but right away it seemed like there was something pretty, pretty interesting about him that uh, the Phillies did a really nice job mm-hmm. uh, evaluating him. Cause yeah, like you said, could, can stick behind the plate went out, had a really good pro debut that summer. So I think there, yeah, there is offensive ability there too, to go with the the defensive side. So I think, like you said, probably somebody who deserves some, some more attention and, mm-hmm. and probably has always deserved some, some more attention than, than what he's got going back, uh, going back the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, as we talk about these players, like guys who maybe you didn't really pay enough attention to. And as you kind of read up on, on what they're doing, the reports we're getting and, and take a look at their performance, you start liking them more since the handbook process is complete now and all of us have read through uh, the bulk of the book. I'm sure a lot of people on staff have already read through the entire thing. Now, as just as we go through the editing process, it's always fun for me because it doesn't really feel like I'm working. I'm really just getting a better understanding of, of the talents around the game. But, but are there any prospects that you feel like throughout the process, you, you really liked more and more kind of as you kept reading about them and kept getting familiar with those players, anyone who jumps out to you? Yeah, well, one of mine was Aaron Ashby um, with the Brewers, left-handed pitcher who, you know, com- when when everything got shut down in, in 2020, 
it was tough, right? Cause he, he was at the alternate site training site. He was all right there. And then went to instructional league and he, he was like blowing guys away there. Uh, it sounded like his, his stuff had ticked up also, but at the same time, like he was a, what he was 22 or maybe even 23 by the time instruct started going up against, you know, a lot of guys that were the same age as like, you know, Hedbert Perez and Jefferson Kira, like 18, 19 year olds. So how much stock do you put into that? And, you know, going at it in, in short stints. So only throwing a, a few innings at a time, how much does the, you know, the jump and stuff matter for, for that hard to say, but the, just going over the Brewers list this year. And, and obviously you have guys like Freelich and uh, Sal Freelich, their first round pick last year and Garrett Mitchell and, and Bryce Terang at, at the top of that system. But uh, just looking at Ashby more uh, obviously went out and, you know, pitched in, in the big leagues this year. So, so a lot more people got to see him there, but just diving into him more, I, the more impressed I, I became with him. Um, I think it's, it's a chance for three plus or, or better pitches uh, fastballs up to about 99 from, from the left side, his, his slider can be a, uh, a real wipeout pitch when it's on to whether it's, you know, against lefties or, or against righties um, that, that change up made, made a lot of strides too. He, he doesn't use it as much, but I, I think that has a, a chance to be plus, even though it, you know, it, it's not the same, not the ideal separation um, off his, off his fastball, but uh, I think it can be a really, really effective pitch. So we're, you know, he has the stuff to, to miss a ton of bats. Uh, the, I think his, his command needs to improve. They've, they've kind of mixed him between starting and, and relieving, I think just getting him into their, um, just to get him onto the field for, for their major league club, their, their rotation is obviously really, really strong in, in Milwaukee, but I, I see him as a, a starter long-term. Uh, I don't know if it's going to come right away or if they just kind of ease him in to that through, through a bullpen role starting out, like kind of like they did with Burns and, and Woodruff too. But um, I, I think he has a chance to be a, you know, a number two type starter uh, potentially and, and just stacking him up compared to some of the other top left-handed pitching prospects in the game. Um, you know, I, I like, you know, I like guys like Reed Detmers and Libertor and, you know, DL Hall obviously has great, great stuff, but um, you know, I, I think you make a case. He's the best left-handed pitching prospect in, in the game right now. Yeah, I think that would be a strong one. And I actually wanted to touch on another left-handed pitching prospect. I don't know where you would include him in this conversation, but my guy that that I was kind of just more impressed than I expected to be is Nick Lodolo, um, the left-handed pitcher with the Reds. Uh, I, I don't know if it's just kind of lingering comments about the 2019 pitching class. That class was one of the worst college pitching classes that we'd seen. And Nick was just the top pitcher in that class. So I think I just associate the perceived weakness of that group with Nick. And maybe that's unfair um, for me to do so, but I mean, he's been really impressive and, and two other players in that class have, have probably made it look a little bit better than 
scouts were talking about it at the time, just between Alec Manoa, what he's done, and then the pitcher that George Kirby has developed into. But what has impressed me with Lodolo is just the strikeout rate that he's maintained, um, especially at the upper levels of the minors. And in 2021, he struck out almost 14 per nine at the double A level where the bulk of his season came. I was 10 starts and 44 innings, and he posted a 1.84 ERA uh, with fewer than two walks per nine. The two walks per nine is, is not surprising to me. He was always a really polished pitcher who seemed to have a good feel for filling up the zone, using a fastball slider changeup combination. Um, but I was always just a little bit concerned about whether or not he would get enough swing and miss to kind of get the ceiling that you would want from a top 10 in a class college pitcher. And to this point, he has done better than I expected in that regard. Maybe the slider, uh, which was always a good pitch, is just a legitimate plus pitch for him. And then when you combine the fastball command, his ability to go in and out, his confidence in using a changeup um, and using a few other pitches that are maybe a little bit fringier, because I don't think that that anything in his arsenal is as loud as Aaron Ashby's. Uh, but when you pair his ability to repeat his delivery, repeat his release point, spot up in the zone, um, and really attack wherever he wants, I think it helps a lot of that stuff play up, or at least it seems to be the case so far. So that's a guy who I think, uh, I would say entering the prospect handbook season, I probably had a uh, a less exciting opinion of him just, just when I thought about him. And now um, it, it's certainly elevated, just looking at the numbers he's produced and 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 how good he's continued to be. Again, it's it's not a huge bulk of innings. He's still only thrown 69 innings in the minors, but he's continued to be the pitcher that I thought he could be, or I thought he was from a, a pitchability standpoint in college and the whiffs have still been there. So that's an encouraging one for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good delivery. He repeats it, fills the zone, a ton of strikes. It's going to be, you know, plus, if not plus, plus control. And, and the stuff is, I mean, yeah, yeah it's not Ashby stuff. I, I think it's still pretty good. Like, I don't know. There's like a wipeout 70, pitch that he's ever going to have in there but it's it's pretty good velocity still from from the left side you, you talked about the slider i think it's it's an effective changeup. so uh, it's something where everything plays up to just because of his his ability to to mix and match and, and hit his spots too two other players that i wanted to mention really quick just from uh doing doing the braves chapter i mean michael harris I specifically wanted to just mention his, his defensive ability. I saw some like advanced data that would suggest that he was one of the better defensive outfielders in the minors. I don't know how much stock to put in those numbers at this point, just because my familiarity with that is, is pretty early on. Um, but the scouts that I talked to as well, just raved about his defense. Um, and he was a lot closer to how scouts talked about Christian Pache than I ever expected to hear from Michael Harris. So when you combine that with his bat to ball ability with his tool set overall, uh, he, he's obviously a guy who jumped from outside of the top 10 to number one. Um, so it wasn't as surprising to me to, to feel really confident about him. And then Zach Veen was another, he was obviously a top 10 player in his draft class. One of the better hitters in the high school class. You could, you could argue he was the best hitter. I think we had him as the, the highest ranked hitter in that class. Um, but his performance just gave me a little bit more um, optimism about his hitting ability. It's still lower levels, um, but I thought he might strike out a little bit. I think he hit over 300, 400, 500, um, ran really well. Uh, again, I thought he was going to be a little bit slower just in terms of like the stolen bases he would give you. And again, part of this might just be 
the different rule set that we're working with in the lower minors that right. makes you a little bit more uh, skeptical about stolen base totals. But I mean, Veen did everything that, that I would imagine you want him to do given a player of his pedigree. And I think with his frame, with his raw power, we're only going to see more and more power output with him. So even if those stolen base numbers back up, which I expect they will, um, I think that he's still a player that's going to give you average, going to give you on base, going to give you slug. Um, and he's athletic enough to play a pretty good corner. So he's a guy who I, I don't know if this is me appreciating him more, but just kind of him producing and kind of confirming the player that, that we thought he could be when he was showing flashes during his spring season in high school and he was kind of shooting up draft boards. So those are, two yeah. more. I don't know if you had any others, Ben. No, he's uh yeah, he's a good one. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, there, 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 there is still some swing and miss to it that he showed, but within, even within that, I, I think, think maybe hope almost to some extent it should be, uh, it, it should be manageable for him. And there's a really broad base of other skills that he has too, between the, the athleticism, the power, uh, he's, he's patient. He's not just up there as a, as a free swinger. I think there's going to be some strikeouts, but he's, he's going to hit for, I think a lot of power. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's and, patient. He's going to, he's going to draw some walks. Uh, yeah. The to, 13% to offset the 13% walk rate is really encouraging and it really shouldn't be surprising to me. Just watching him in high school. He, he always seemed like a player who had a pretty keen understanding of the strike zone. And while he did swing and miss in high school, I never really saw him expand the zone much. Uh, it wasn't to the same level as like Corbin Carroll zone awareness, but it was pretty good. It would be up there with, with some of the best like zone awareness and, and swing decisions in terms of in, in zone versus out of zone that I can remember off the top of my head now. So that makes me feel confident about like, like you're saying, even, even if there is some swing and miss that OBP and that power should give you a pretty safe floor, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of strong, really strong reports on him too, from, from scouts who really were following him closely last year. Kind of jumping off this conversation, Ben, with, with how we've seen Ashby's uh, velocity and development tick up with the Brewers, how does a, a player's organization, the org that they're with, that, that organization's track record of developing players or, or their track record of not having players pan out, how does that affect how you look at a player? Does it at all? How do you factor that into rankings? Uh, and just how do you think about that generally? Yeah, I, I try just to rank the player and evaluate the player independent of the organization. Um, you know, the Brewers, I don't, I don't think they will, but like they could say, hey, we have plenty of pitching. We're going to trade Aaron Ashby uh, tomorrow to, um, you know, to another organization. And so, so that could happen at, at any time. But um, what, I, you know, it, it's it's hard not to, okay, you know, look at the success that the Brewers have had in developing pitchers like like Woodruff and and Burns and um, you know they didn't sign Freddie Peralta but they got him when he was at the the lower levels of of the minor leagues and and really did develop him, um, you know Devin Williams too. So there's there's a pretty strong track record there in Milwaukee that probably does give me more belief and more confidence in, in Ashby. Uh, but I try not to let that influence the, the reporter or, or, or the projection or the, uh, the ranking 
on on him. But on on the other hand, it's you know like a lot of the converse you know we're, we're having conversations with a lot of different scouts and and front office people through throughout the game, and you know had known a lot of these you know these folks you know going back 10, 15 years in in some cases. So you know if if you're having a conversation with somebody who you you know you think has a really good track record of evaluating pitchers for let's say for example uh, and as you know has been historically correct on a lot of them um if if you know if not publicly then then at least in conversations you know with with you privately just for these calls on on players uh then yeah like I'm, I'm more apt to give that evaluators more weight uh sometimes uh if, if they have that track record i think they really have a good eye for for what they're looking at so so something like that you know if, if i'm you know talking to a you know a scout or a front you know front office official somebody in in player development who i, I think really knows uh and, and has a good eye for and, and track record uh with me for you know what they're what they're doing and and what they're looking at that is something that were yeah it it probably will more heavily influence the the way that uh, you know I I might write up or or view a player I'm looking forward to your your top evaluator rankings dropping <laughs> at some point this year Ben No that, that's a good call you definitely have to get a feel for just biases that people have or like you said just the hit rate that you have with the evaluators you talk with and it's something that you probably been developing for for decades now yeah, can, I mean, can I, we say I, decades I, for you? Been in here for two decades, right? Started in two thousand seven, so you're coming up on yeah, coming up on fifteen years. But okay. yeah, I mean, I, I think if like if you're a scouting director too, you're you, you have to do the same thing with your you know with your area scouts and and your cross checkers too. Like you, you probably have certain guys who you really trust on you know breaking down a a hitter or just knowing your own scouts and how they tend to lean and how they tend to evaluate. Cause some guys are, you know, a little bit more, you know, sunny and, and optimistic on players. And then you have other scouts that I'm, you know, I'm sure you've talked to too, who will just like crush everybody. Everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, a so. 50 for, well, I, I guess a 40 for one, for one scout is it's not the same as a 40 for another. Yeah. It's everybody you know, views things through a different lens. So if you're running a, you know, if, if you're running a draft or if, if you're an international director or, or, if, or if you're a GM too, and, and you're trying to, you know, understand where your, um, you know, where your reports are coming from, trying to make a decision on a, on a trade, just knowing, mm-hmm. knowing your own staff, your own, your own evaluators is, is important. And it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a different situation for us, but there's a lot of similarities too, just in terms of knowing, having, having a track record and having history with the people you, you speak with. So, you know, like, Oh, like if this guy gets like really excited about a player, it means something. Yeah. Uh, Cause he uh, is usually uh, pretty, pretty brutally <laughs> canted on, uh, on guys. I think that way about Josh sometimes he's such a, such a skeptic in general and, and hates players. So when he's excited about one guy, I kind of do a double take and, and, and make sure I'm paying attention to who he likes. Um, but no, that's a good point. Kind of going back to Ashby a little bit, Ben, what, what jumped out to me when reading his report and you guys, if you want to read Ben's full report on Ashby and the rest of the brewers, check that out at the website. 
um, was just a velocity uptick over the course of, I don't know how many years it's been, uh, four, three or four years, or maybe even four or five years at this point. But he used to be a guy who was pitching in the mid 80s. And now he's touching 99 miles per hour from the left side. So how, how are you viewing just velocity gains from pitchers? It seems like it's, it's just become so common for teams to get pitchers in their systems now, improve their velocity, whether that's just a better understanding kind of universally of how to add velocity, how to take care of your body, how to train your arm. How do you view that? And do, do you, I guess, how do you view pitchers who have below average velocity do you kind of just assume they're going to make gains? How do you view just the velocity question? Because for me, it seems like more and more teams just know how to unlock that. How are you, how are you viewing it? And, and how does Ashby's velocity growth over the years change or, or affect how you think about pitching? Yeah, it's with the, with Ashby, it's been this, like, I mean, he's had some, some jumps. I don't know if I'd call them spikes, but it's, it's been a sort of a, a steadier progress with him. It's not like he came out one year and all of a sudden added, you know, four to five miles an hour on, on his fastball. So it's, it's just been sort of in this upward trend pointing in, in the right direction, both with, well, there's his, his velocity and just his, his slider too, I think keeps taking steps forward. But I, I think that in addition to, you know, just obviously the health is such a, a big factor, but it's it's what makes projecting pitching so difficult, right? Like I, I think certainly like the younger you go, the more you know leniency you have on all right. Well, certainly this you know seventeen year old you're signing out of the Dominican Republic who's got a fast arm is up to ninety three and is about you know six two one sixty five with like a good delivery. All right, like you, you can expect him to add velocity just through just through natural strength progression, extra calories getting into his uh, into his system. So there, you know, you can there there are certain projection indicators where you can not necessarily count on that happening, but where you can make a good bet that that velocity uh, increase will come for a player. Uh, but yeah, now we just see more, more guys even coming out of college, you know, George Kirby, you know, bumping up their velocity, you know, it's like Jacob deGrom is like the prime example of, of just how dramatically a pitcher, um, you know, can change from when he was in college or, or, or the lower levels of, of the minor leagues. Like you go back and read his, his scouting reports when he was in the early days in, in the Mets system, it just, like there's nothing in there that looks like the the Jacob Degrom that we that we see today. So it it definitely makes it you know more challenging as we're seeing you know amateur like college player college age players and and players in the lower levels uh, or even upper levels of of the minor leagues sometimes who are in their 20s making these velocity jumps that that we probably didn't see as much going back you know five ten years ago. Yeah, are there any other notable players that are that have made velo jumps since getting an org uh, that kind of come to mind outside of Ashby? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that, touch on. I think Kyle Harrison is one a few years ago, mm-hmm. or I think it was maybe just last year. He he made a pretty significant uptick in velocity and already had a good foundation of of pitchability and strike throwing that makes that really exciting. Yeah, I think the the most interesting one <laughs> this year is Ricky Tiedemann from the Blue Jays, left-handed pitcher, another JUCO guy like Ashby. So he's he's younger. He was you know JUCO guy drafted at what he would have been 19 during, during the draft or he, he, he was young still. He was very young for the draft initially out of high school. And so then going to Juco and getting drafted out of college, he was, he was exceedingly young for just college players in general, but yeah, always young for. Right. So, you know, playing out Juco ball in in California and, you know, reports on him out there were like up to 93 or 94. Um, you know, a little bit up from what he had shown before, but, uh, you know, pretty consistently 88, 93, 94 gets drafted third round pick by the blue Jays in 2021 doesn't pitch during, you know, the season. They just, you know, wanted to manage his, his workload coming out of there. And he goes to instructional league and I don't, I don't, I don't think he threw a pitch under 94 <laughs> at instructions. What he had, topped out it earlier in in the year and he was up to 98 so we're talking about within you know from the time he was drafted to instructional league right after the minor league season a jump of four miles an hour in, in top end velocity so um you know we have a now we have a instead of a lefty who you know had, had a lot of things to like between you know you know a, a decent fastball but a really athletic pitcher with a a plus changeup at times um but you know that not not kind of blow you away stuff now all of a sudden it's up it's a lefty up to 98 with mm-hmm. you know flashing a a, a plus changeup so yeah the, um, the athleticism for him in high school and just the, the body you could see that that it was a body that he could fill out and get really strong i don't know what his height and weight was listed at in high school but i think now he's like 6'4 220 really strong broad shoulders just looks like a, a physical beast on the mound at this point yeah the the it, and it's hard to know again like i'm in a little different situation than than ashby was just because the the circumstances of 2020, but you know it, it's hard to know just how much stock to. I mean, it, it's real. Like he was throwing 94 to 98 at instructs, but just how much does that change his his future outlook? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and it was you know obviously it's coming in in shorter shorter stints there at at instructs, but um, you know curious to see like what he'll be what he'll be sitting at next year. And then, and then sometimes when these guys have a, you know, a fast velocity spike like that, sometimes it's like, I almost get a little nervous. Like, is, is he doing something different mechanically that's putting more stress on, on his elbow or on his arm to generate that velocity? Is it, is it going to, you know, increase his, his injury risk? I mean, certainly, Certainly hope not, but um, it's it's you know one of the, there is a relationship obviously between uh, velocity and, and injuries. So um, it's it it's a uh, it's just another factor. An, another to, pitcher in the Blue Jays system was Gunnar Hoagland started throwing a lot harder and then got injured. I don't know if that's 
a direct correlation there, but to your point, when you, when you start throwing harder, you, there are some reasons it's not all, it's not always just a hundred percent, a good thing. It's a good point. Yeah, to I raise. mean, it's, I mean, his, his stock is definitely up, right? Like mm-hmm. I'd rather have Ricky Tiedemann who throws up to 98 yeah, yeah, yeah. than Ricky Tiedemann who throws sure. <laughs> up to 94. So, but yeah, he, he's one guy where it's like, man, I, I don't quite know, especially in that blue Jays system where it's like, yeah, you have kind of an obvious top, I think, five we debate the order exactly but like five you know six or so guys in there and then after that i think the the system drops off uh you know pretty good and and you can debate the the order after that so i wasn't quite sure how high to to run him so he might end up being one of the most uh even though he is in their top 10 prospects um he's somebody who i could see looking back uh, a year from now and saying oh this this guy was underrated <laughs> coming into the year Appreciate that insight, Ben. Uh, I think those are all the topics we wanted to touch on today, unless I'm missing something. Uh, is there anything else you want to just mention or uh, throw out there before we kind of wrap things up, Ben? It's, it's been great to get back on the podcast with you. And again, I've said this a few times, but I'm, I'm excited to get a consistent podcasting schedule and, uh, and come to you guys regularly because I am a little bit tired of having to not be able to answer, why aren't we podcasting? And now that Ben's got his, uh, his announcement out of the way, I can just put it all on you. It's uh yeah I mean we didn't get a chance to just thank people I guess <laughs> at the uh, yeah. the end of the year like we True. normally would have so yeah just appreciate all all you guys for for listening and and downloading and and sticking with us so like Carlos said we'll be uh back on a on a more regular schedule going forward I mean kind of a good thing for uh, obviously I don't want the lockout to continue right but like for a lot of what we do at Baseball America like high school like the draft the college baseball like scouting high school players international signings like the minor league player like all pretty much most of that is gonna go on as businesses as usual so we got uh we got plenty to talk about yeah we absolutely do uh we'll continue taking questions from you guys um as we go throughout the week so definitely reach out to us on twitter mine is carlos a Colazzo. ben is at ben badler um, and again, if you guys haven't left a review and you want to, you can do that at iTunes. Thank you to everyone who has already left a review and rated the podcast. Like Ben said, thank you guys so much for, for listening and downloading. Um, this is again, one of, one of our more exciting projects we get to do here at BA. We really like doing the podcast and excited to bring it into its second year of existence in 2022. And, um, like Ben said, as, as long as the lockouts here, we will still be producing content. We've got international content that's already on the site Uh, more of that to come in the future we've got our first combined draft list for the 2022 class coming soon we've got some fantasy content uh, that me and ben and a few others on the staff have been working on lately it's january at baseball america which is always a busy month so if you are gearing up for the season whether that's high school whether that's college whether that's the minors uh, there should be something for you there Um, so again thank you to everyone for listening for ben i'm carlos Until next time, everybody. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.